director, distinguished guests, students, journalists, and friends of LSE. My name is Anne Lapping, and as vice chair of the LSE Court of Governors, it's an honor and a pleasure for me to welcome you to LSE this evening and to introduce an inaugural lecture by our new director, Professor Craig Calhoun. Craig arrived to take up the role of director officially on the 1st of September. He's already shown himself to be a forceful and open-minded leader, enthusiastically committed to LSE life. So I'm sure he will be familiar to many of you already. But for those of you who don't yet know him, a little bit about his background. Craig joins us from New York University, where he was school professor and director of the Institute of Public Knowledge. He is a highly regarded multidisciplinary social science, scientist, and he combines the roles of intellectual and academic with strong leadership skills. At NYU, apart from his academic work, Craig was influential in a series of university developments, including overseas campuses in Shanghai and Abu Dhabi. Again, as president of the American Social Science Research Council for 12 years, Craig initiated major projects on subjects raising, ranging from the privatization of risk through new communications technologies to African peace building. These raised the council's profile, increasing its impact on the social sciences. And a good omen for LSE, Craig also managed to raise its budget, even though, even though the age of austerity was upon us. Although American-born and bred, Craig is no stranger to the United Kingdom. He holds an MA from Manchester and a DPhil from Oxford. And these are just two of the four degrees he's accumulated, studying anthropology, social anthropology, sociology and history, all reflecting his intellectual curiosity and commitment to multidisciplinarity. It's no surprise that, as a contemporary Renaissance man, he has a backstory with LSE. He has always been interested in the school's work and in working with the school. With Richard Sennett, for example, he co-founded Nylon, the New York-London program bringing graduate students together for, to cooperate in research. Craig relates academic endeavor to the public good and understands how to make research impact on society. He thinks about the world's problems and is passionate about ensuring the broad range of social sciences are accessible and relevant. For all these reasons, we are confident that the school will thrive under his directorship. And for these same reasons, I am eager, as I'm sure we all are, to hear his views on the public mission of research universities and his plans for the future. But before I invite the director to speak, may I remind those of you who are on Twitter that the hashtag for today's event, today's event is LSE Knowledge, what else? I would also like just to introduce Professor Nicholas Barr, who will be chairing tonight's lecture and moderating the following question and answer session. Nick is Professor of Public Economics at LSE, and, his, and with his work on financing higher education, no slouch himself at making a public impact. 
Finally, I'd like you all to join us afterwards, just outside the theatre, for a reception with the new director. Now, please join me in welcoming Professor Craig Calhoun to deliver his inaugural lecture entitled Knowledge Matters, the Public Mission of Research University. Well, enough about me, let's talk about you. The LSE was founded in 1895 as a university with a public mission. It would inform the public through various forms of communication, from lectures to classes to publications. In this, it was aided by its location in and its engagement with a great city. It was not a university in beautiful medieval surroundings. It was not a university in retreat in the countryside. It was a university in and of the city and of the world to which the city connected it. It would be open, said the founders, to the public, accessible not least by admitting a much broader range of students than traditional elite universities. It would advance subjects of research that could provide knowledge needed to pursue the public good. Whether the pursuit would be carried out by the state or by civil society organizations was open for the founders engaged both in different ways. Indeed, the LSE worked with a variety of extra-academic organizations throughout its early period, including local and soon national government, but also social movement organizations, charities, and a variety, some of them engaged even in the project of poverty eradication on the virtual spot where we sit tonight. It is significant that the founding was carried out, however, not with state funding, but with private resources. In due course, state funding did come to help the LSE advance, but it was not this alone that defined its publicness. And I think that that's a very important question and the main or issue and the main theme for my talk tonight. Being public is not something that is settled by the budget or its sources. Being a part of the state or directly funded by the state does not guarantee that any institution will pursue a public agenda or will work in broadly public ways as it engages people. Being public is a choice, a choice that we hope will be encouraged by state funding and we hope that we continue to receive well, we hope we start to receive generous state funding and continue to receive some. <laughs> but, right, our determination to be public right, is a determination that we choose, that we take on as a matter of mission. And what I want to talk about is something of what that means and why it matters and to situate it in, a <clears throat> in relation to the broader institutional changes in higher education, in universities, and in our context. 
The LSE, as I've said, was then public by virtue of its mission, its ways of working. Right? And I think it still is in both cases. So this is not going to be a talk that leads to the conclusion, oh, we've completely lost our way, must rethink completely. But it is going to lead to questions about how one maintains that sense of a public mission in a new and a different era. And it's going to suggest, by way of foreshadowing, that our problem is not just with outsiders. Our problem is not just with government decisions about funding. Our problem is not just with externally imposed criteria of judgment, the REF or any others. Our question is about the way in which we have grown and how we have organized ourselves as we have grown <clears throat> as an institution and indeed in a sector. Now, implicit in the LSE's public mission was an agenda of advancing knowledge through research. Though the LSE was not initially called a university, and it was a tiny handful of people who could hardly have claimed simply to be a university at the outset, and it wasn't even a part of London University until 1902, it was part of a transformation of higher education that produced the research university as a vital social institution. We often use the word university as though it obviously would include research, as though that's just what we mean by it, and we all know that. But I think it's clear that that's not so. It's certainly not equally so for all the institutions that claim the title university today, but it neither is it true for really any of the world's leading universities before the late 19th century. The idea that research, that advancing new knowledge, that producing knowledge through empirical analysis and a form of theory tied to not separated from empirical analysis would be definitive of universities was something very new. The research university model is a relatively recent institutional innovation, not inherited from earlier institutions called universities. It ran contrary to the vision of the university that Cardinal Newman famously articulated in the idea of the university, along with a variety of others in the 19th century, who raised questions about why research should be bundled with teaching in the identity of the university. And I want to raise that question, answer it in the opposite way. And I want to suggest that it's pivotal for us today, if we cannot answer and answer well the question, of why research should be at the heart of a great university, we will not long be a great university. We need to answer that in ways that relate to and inform our teaching mission, relate to and inform our mission of engagement with broader publics, of service to the public good, of building a better society, as the founders put it. New entrance into the project of a research university and to some extent older universities as they transformed themselves in the 19th century, emphasized a new curriculum with courses of study more open to new thinking and to practical affairs in a changing world. 
Indeed, the University of London, the older version that forbear to UCL as well as to the larger university, to King's College, was one of the first entrants. But it wasn't initially a research university in any strong sense. It was, in the 19th century, devoted to thinking, sometimes thinking outside the box, producing rational analyses of various social questions, such as those suggested by Bentham and the utilitarian tradition, or by new directions in legal thought, so that it was innovative, but it was innovative primarily not on the basis of research, but on new abstract analyses carried out. It was for it, as well as for the great civic universities of the era, a change to begin to commit themselves to research and a change that at some, like Oxford and Cambridge, was resisted. I think we should think it was a bad thing in many ways that there was as much resistance to the redefinition as there was, but we should also celebrate it because we wouldn't exist had there not been some of this resistance. Had Oxford said eagerly, absolutely, new subjects from the social sciences can't get enough, (laughs) we would not be here today and the public would be less for it. We should note then this important, the importance in this of moving towards a research definition from various other earlier definitions. And I'm going to more or less assume a vague knowledge and not try to provide much more specificity, but of a long history of thinking about this, out of which I want to pick only one or two points from the history of the university. One, the extent to which the very idea of the university, as indeed Cardinal Newman suggested, whatever else we take from his famous book, centered on an idea of the universe of knowledge, the integral connections of all knowledge. And that idea was linked to the religious foundations of the university more than anything else. One God, one truth, one knowledge, therefore interconnection. Therefore, in fact, an organic interconnection. One of the peculiar characteristics of medieval universities was that different academic specializations, philosophy and arts, theology, law, medicine, were not different career tracks. In medieval universities, it was common for people to move successively through chairs in these different fields on the basis of seniority. Having proven yourself in law, let us make you a professor of medicine. (laughs) Having proven yourself in philosophy, let us make you a professor of theology. Perhaps a better bet, though we have only to recall Immanuel Kant's conflict of the faculties to realize that It was, in the late 18th century, a radical program that confronted the censors in Prussia um, and lost in that battle initially to propose that philosophers should be able, on the basis of reason, directly to address questions of theology. And my point here is to suggest that we inherit an idea of the unity of knowledge from an earlier era that we no longer accept the bases for. For the most part, thinking about how we're connected to each other today does not follow the logic, one God, one truth, and a series of careers through a fixed set of chairs, 
based on seniority rather than the mastery of specialized knowledge. This transformation started with the Enlightenment, you can argue the Renaissance in some ways, and continued through the rise of science, right? and then arguments based on method in various senses, reason and logic, that began to transform the university. And there continued to be a faith in the unity of knowledge, not a religious faith, but a faith that transcended empirical proof for the history of the research university was a history of the disintegration of knowledge in large part, a history of specialization, achievements made possible by specialization, and various losses of some of the kinds of interconnection. There have been recurrent movements to overcome this. E.O. Wilson's recent project of consilience, for example, in the sciences. We have a variety of efforts to change the curriculum in American universities to produce the ideal foundation that would integrate study before people start their specialized subjects. I don't want to go into the history, but only to suggest that we see a tension introduced here by the way in which research began to develop and develop as a project of specialization. More on that in a minute. Several of Britain's great civic universities, often described as the red brick universities, originated as teaching centers for University of London exams. London itself was always in some degree a federal institution and a structure for examinations more than teaching. This isn't entirely new. For a time in the late 19th century, there was an alternative federal university, Victoria University, which joined Liverpool, Leeds, and Manchester in a common structure. They became independent only at the beginning of the 20th century. And while they had given somewhat more of a place to research and technical subjects than before, um, than universities before, it is a partially mythical history to say that these universities founded in great industrial towns were from the beginning centers of science-based technological innovation. This is something that began to be introduced into these universities, though considerably farther along. It was in the early 20th century that they began to define research as central. The 1895 founding of the LSE was distinctive because of the centrality of research from the outset and of new subjects to the initial vision. It was not only a set of reforms in older models. It was radically suggesting that there were new and different subjects to teach. And occasionally through our history, we have again introduced new subjects and argued for radical change. Now, I could narrate other versions of a partially similar story, the way in which Scottish and especially German examples informed the late 19th century American universities as they restructured, also specializing and leading to changes that would affect us here in turn in various ways. The LSE was founded in the middle of a flowering of research universities, creating a form which has existed pretty much to the present, though the LSE has always been a little atypical within it, not trying to knit together all the different parts common to the other universities. Research achievement became in this new model a requirement for teachers as the PhD degree spread. And again, it's worth remembering that's a recent spread. Right? It's a much more recent spread in Britain than in the United States, but even there, 
It's a spread in the, that starts very early with roots in the 1870s, places like Johns Hopkins University. Catches on at Chicago and Cornell and Columbia and eventually Harvard, grudgingly. And gradually grows. Yet, at the beginning of the 20th century, there were approximately 600 PhDs granted annually in the United States. Last year, the figure was 43,000, down just a little bit in the context of the recession from a previous peak. A transformation in the production of specialized scholars, a change in the idea of who would be university teachers and how they would qualify for the post. The undergraduate curriculum, in turn, was reorganized in terms of disciplinary fields of research and became increasingly specialized. We recurrently comment at the LSE on the centrality of departments and disciplines to our structure. Rightly, I think, for the most part, they are central. We rely on them. And we talk about them as though they have existed from time immemorial. You will remember the story. Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and it was revealed that there would be 70 academic disciplines spanning the subfields of the natural sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities. The LSE did not have departments prior to the 1960s. It was organized initially with only some partial reference to disciplines, even though it played a central role in the emergence of disciplines, which really emerged in their modern form only in the era when the LSE was founded and on into the early 20th century, and always with various other projects accompanying them. The LSE resisted many aspects of the emerging model, like organization through departments, like the ascendancy of disciplinary over disciplinary, interdisciplinary, and the ascendancy of, of um, disciplinary over problem-focused research and teaching. The early curricula of the LSE were largely focused on issues and problems, not the teaching of academic disciplines. External funding for specific research projects began to grow in the same era. It is this era which gives rise to the modern philanthropic foundation in large part, um, as well as the investments of government money in this sort of funding. Both science and fields of professional study that had often been organized outside universities were brought into academic structures and reformed in the process. So while there had been in those medieval universities faculties of medicine and law, it may be a kind of testimony to what went on in the faculties of medicine and law that when it came to training doctors and lawyers, society relied largely on extra-academic institutions of apprenticeship and pupillage to accomplish this training in practical skills. But increasingly, right, professions were brought within the fold of the university, and they were brought within the fold of the university on the basis of a notion of research as fundamental to professional knowledge. I won't try to repeat any particular story of it, but there are such stories in all professions. In medicine, for example, it is partly the story of molecular biology, of microbe-based analysis, of the transformation of medicine at the end of the 19th century, again, by the rise of laboratory-based science in addressing diseases like cholera, 
not least in places like London, which had been recurrently hit by cholera, which had developed accounts of it like miasma, right, which actually had both large elements of falseness, that is, they would be disproved by the microbial theories, and an element of truth. They connected disease to proximity, to sanitation, and to public health in various ways. But in the case of cholera and in others, by the end of the 19th century, we saw the rise of a new model of medicine in which practitioners who had only practical training were increasingly at a disadvantage, even in the marketplace, to practitioners who also had scientific training. And through the 20th century, this would grow in importance. And I mention this partly because at the LSE, I have heard in my 10 weeks of experience um, more than once the indication that there is something odd about the fact that we have taken on professional education in this institution, which should be devoted to something called the social sciences in a way that is not professional. Now, I note from the founding, the LSE was engaged in practical and often professional education, but also that the LSE is entirely typical of a trend that in its very era brought education for the professions into the realm of the universities more fully beyond education for a small number that have been part of the classical curriculum in this. Science previously had been largely an amateur enterprise and it was remade as a professional activity of researchers working in a more disciplined division of labor and the LSE, right, in the social sciences sought from early on to build a rigorous scientific basis. I have to note as an aside to the story that we mostly have accepted an interesting bit of nomenclature. Historically, it was the case that one spoke of the arts and humanities fields, right, arts and philosophy, and the social sciences early on were often addressed like science in the singular. Science, we would say, not the sciences. But increasingly we began to say the social sciences, emphasizing the distinction among the different fields and their differences, arguably, ostensibly, of method, though I think that that was never quite an accurate picture and we began to produce more of the disintegration of the university in that sense. So the more typical pattern that drew on an older ideal that universities would reflect the unity of knowledge was replaced by the very notion of research itself and the unity of all being researchers, even doing different kinds of research in various ways. This drew on various sorts of epistemological arguments, though I think that, in fact, researchers have never shown a great enthusiasm for epistemological arguments. It's very hard to get practicing researchers to want to go back to epistemological philosophical headquarters to examine the underpinnings of their thought. It's a practical enterprise, and they want to get on with practicing it for the most part. Nonetheless, right, it provided a kind of working commonality. Moreover, universities that embraced all of knowledge had a hard time sustaining any notion of the unity of knowledge. As I said, science came closer than arts and the social sciences. But everywhere, universities tended to divide into faculties, disciplinary departments, and other specialized units. Universities 
by the middle of the 20th century had become a form of conglomerate corporation. They had begun increasingly to have units which pursued different agendas with minimal relationship to each other. And by the end of the 20th century, that operated often as separate profit centers. Research universities, don't worry, the story doesn't go on forever, and it does get to a moral to the story. Research universities expanded enormously in the era after World War II and were further transformed in the process um, and indeed transformed their contexts. There was only relatively modest expansion, it's well stressing, before World War II. Right? The majority of all universities did not exist before World War II, whether you are looking at Britain or the United States or other cases. Whether you measure expansion in terms of student enrollments or budgets or the number of researchers or the volume of their products, the expansion to create the system in which we now work is relatively recent. And it's still going on, and this is significant for the future of the LSE. Expansion tracked, for the most part, economic prosperity, though not perfectly. There was growth in the 1920s, though relatively little growth in any other decade before World War II. There was growth in the post-war boom, and especially in the 1960s and early 1970s, followed by another period of stagnation in the 70s and 80s. Let me just recount it, because I want to use it as a background for something. It's important to remember that in the early 20th century, university education was still the privilege of a very tiny elite, and it's important to remember conversely that that's not true now. Not that there's no elitism, not that universities don't participate in the production of elitism, but simply being a university student or graduate no longer sets one apart as an elite in any of the OECD countries and not in Britain. In the US, about 3% of young adults had bachelor's degrees at the beginning of the 20th century. There was increase, as I said, in the period and in waves. 5% had degrees in 1945, right? So from 1900 to 1945, 3 to 5%. Growth, big, from a low basis. It, the figure jumped to 20% within the next decade. Another jump in the later 1960s brought it to 30%, and it has since moved close to half. In other words, we're talking about a standard of education achieved by about half the population closer to 40% in Britain, but not that much different anymore, though the growth came a bit later. In the UK, overall participation in higher education right, increased from 3.4% in 1950 right, to 8.4% in 1970, 19.3% in 1990, and 33% in 2000. It will not be lost on you that there's both a transformation in what gets called a university in the middle of this story um, and a shift in the indicator. But that's a staggering figure at both ends. It's staggering to note how small the field of higher education was in the early part of the history of the LSE. Right? Through the early years, the halcyon days when our founders were still alive and the LSE was, as we sometimes think, in its classic days, right? Going to any university was an activity right, of less than 3% of the population. 
right? As late as 1970, right, less than 9% of the population went to university, right? Very recent policies, and you change this, starting in the 1960s with the Robbins Report from right here, and I will add, Nick Barr will lead a conference in a year on the anniversary of the Robbins Report, which gave a major push to expansion of the university sector, and the last major intellectually driven, public mission driven push that the higher education sector in Britain has had to this day. There have been expansions, there have been changes, but there has not been a comparable stock-taking and a comparable push on a collective intellectual basis. Expansion came partly, as in the case of the 1960s universities in Britain, by building new universities, partly by increasing numbers at those already existing. In the UK, expansion was outside the university sector and modest until the 1960s. The boom that followed the Roberts Report um, maintained a division with polytechnics initially that ended in the post-1988 reclassification. The pattern since has been mainly growth, right? and this is an essential background to looking at the question of cuts, budgets, potential for shakeouts today. There is no understanding what is going on in British higher education today that doesn't have a historical perspective on this dramatic growth and the difficulty working through what it means, what it costs, who benefits from it. The post-war boom was transformative. <clears throat> Growth was enormous in almost all developed countries. I've just given examples. And it changed what had been only an educational option for elites into a broad structure of opportunities. Though expanding opportunities, it has to be said, did not always deliver what was promised when it was sold. The post-war boom in higher education, dramatic expansion in the size of universities, continuing through that which followed the Robbins era, was largely said to promise social mobility. It was described by those who funded it, the policies that adopted it, as a vehicle in large part to produce social mobility. And let me point out that inequality is greater now than at the date of the Robbins Report. It's not because we didn't expand the number of people going to university. We did. But we internalized into the university system a kind of hierarchy and a reproduction of hierarchy that had previously been largely outside of the university system. Credentialism, the harnessing of universities to class reproduction were as real as new opportunities. But the new opportunities were not false. People were able to go to university from families in which nobody had previously gone to university before, from communities in which going to university was extraordinarily rare. And when they arrived at universities, to study subjects right, that they had barely heard of in some cases, right, to explore a larger world. And the excitement of the LSE, an excitement which we still feel among our alumni, if you go out and visit LSE alumni, was shaped in this era. We tell over and over again at the LSE the story of the founding. We have different ideologies about what to make of the story of the founding, but we use that story all the time. We ought to tell more often a story of the LSE in the 1960s, 50s, early 70s, in an era of controversy, in an era 
of change, but also in an era when the university was central to producing that social change, right? bringing new populations into the university and changing their lives. So that you have the opportunity, if you go and talk to alumni of the LSE who are in their 60s or 70s, to talk to people who will tell you that their lives were transformed by coming to the LSE. And sometimes that's still true today. I want to hope it's still true. But it's a different situation. It's a different situation partly because of change we made. Almost all English, indeed British, undergraduates who come to the LSE now come from families with prior university graduates. Not just 51%, almost all, vast majority. Okay. We have changed. We've changed for the better something in the larger society, but it changes who we are and what we do here. But there's more that has produced that change. Right? And some of the other characteristics of the LSE are important. So this same year of the post-war boom, just to move on my story, saw universities central to the project of development outside the rich countries, though in those developing countries there was even more severe tension between massification and building research institutions and training elites. But around the world, this is an era when there is dramatic growth in universities. It largely comes to a halt in the 1970s, like many other things. Right? When the recession comes in 74, 75, the post-war boom ends rather abruptly, and we change eras. So from the late 40s to the middle 1970s, governments in the OECD countries, in the rich world, subsidized higher education enormously, and rich world governments subsidized third world or developing country higher education enormously, and developing countries also bought into the promise of higher education and supported it. When academics today Talk about the good old days. Right? Raise questions. University's been going downhill. The LSE is plagued by managerialism. We have a set of problems that need to be resolved. Often true, right? The problems are being contrasted to an imagined history informed mainly by a golden age that was roughly the 1960s or the turn of the previous century, the 1890s into the era just before World War I. Those were boom years for higher education. Now, one of the things that I'm suggesting is we need to see the university, its fate, its promise, in the context of a much larger picture of society. It's not just a question of did somebody decide that we should have different admission standards at the LSE? Did somebody decide that we should have different evaluation standards? Did somebody decide that we should have this or that other managerial procedure? The university is embedded in a larger set of social changes. It tracks waves of prosperity and decline, but it also tracks waves of different kinds of societal advancement. The university did much better as an institution in an era of high mobility growth based on widespread employment, state goals to produce this, and an industrial base to the economy. The university fared much worse in an era when growth was primarily in the financial sector and when it created fewer high-paying jobs, 
which have created more incredibly high-paying jobs, but not so many upper middle. Right? And it created a different investment structure aided by different government policies through this era. So governments in the earlier period, the post-war boom, 40s to 70s, not only subsidized higher education, right, they invested heavily in research. And the proportionate inflow to universities, including this one, based on their research performance and proposals, went up dramatically as a proportion of the budgets, starting in this period. As funders will, governments often set agendas for research, something that we resent, although we've resented it more when other sorts of research funding dried up than we did in this earlier period. Investments were not always specifically to advance academic goals or knowledge for its own sake or indeed for the sake of disciplines. In the United States, the context, um, where there was much more research funding than in Britain, the largest funders of academic research were not the Department of Education or the National Science Foundation, but the Department of Defense and the National Institutes of Health. It has long been the case. It is not something thought up a year ago by David Willits to say that government investments in research would have practical purposes. Okay? This is something that we misunderstand if we think it solely in terms of the contemporary politics. As this suggests, the investments were commonly not for economic, immediate economic advancement, however. The investments in the National Institutes of Health made were to try to cure diseases, to try to improve health. The investments the Defense Department made were to pursue security. And indirectly, they produced enormous economic benefits. The, the late, 19, uh, late 1900s, late, uh, the last century, saw the commercialization of technologies that were produced in large part with government funding in the post-war boom. The massive investments in science and technology produced huge amounts of knowledge that was only later converted to intellectual property and made the basis of commercial applications in microelectronics, computers, biotechnology, and so forth. And part of the importance of this is the relatively poor record of trying to invest at the last step before commercial application something that has been basically unsuccessful by almost all governments that have tried it, and which we are trying now in Britain, and the relatively enormous success of investing in a broader portfolio of university research with other agendas, right, and finding spin-off benefits of various kinds that do depend on entrepreneurs and do depend on commercialization, but don't link this so closely that there isn't the time for basic innovation. The later 1970s ushered in Reagan and Thatcher, neoliberalism, worries about a bloated welfare state, a sharp decline in the industrial economies, and a massive turn towards finance, as I suggested. Universities suffered immediately, perhaps partly because of anger among some in power against the student protests of a few years before, but not entirely. The problems universities faced were mirrored by many other social institutions, including even older models of business corporations and especially government-supported institutions. The fiscal crisis of the state, which is behind a large part of the present world of cuts, is a fiscal crisis that goes back to the 1970s 
Again, it is not something we understand well by looking just in a completely contemporary sense, and therefore when we think of how to confront it and what may change, we miss a lot of what is crucial if we don't see that this has defined a whole era and is unlikely to shift easily. Struggling with the new austerity, universities also began to change their own internal character. Recently politicized campuses depoliticized in defense against external pressure. From this era, the 1970s forward, the studies of professional and especially business-related subjects began a dramatic growth, while most of the social sciences saw declining or stable enrollments and lost momentum. So part of what we see and often analyze as due to some individual leadership decision is a very widespread trend driven primarily by student enrollments and course preferences, though in a way that was also augmented by other kinds of funding arrangements. But in the US, just to make a comparison example, the same thing happened, somewhat different organizations, somewhat earlier phase. All, all the net growth in the 50 leading US universities between the 1970s and the end of the century came in professional schools and technoscience, big science, very large-scale facilities-intensive science, all the net growth. Okay? That isn't to say that there weren't things going up and things going down. It is true that in this very same period, the field of women's studies or gender studies advanced enormously and became significant in universities and though I don't have the firm data in front of me, I am willing to bet a large amount of money never cost as much as a Hadron Collider, <laughs> a Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or a variety of law, business, dentistry, medicine, and other professional schools. Right? So things grew. We tend, all of us, to look in our immediate environment and to understand things from there. But a crucial thing to see is the extent to which something else was happening in this. A career orientation for some, various things to see in it, but a change in our environment. And moreover, a third thing that is important is the importance of externally funded research. Most of the growth in externally funded research actually took place in the previous period with a handful of government agencies in the US but this growth continued when many other kinds of growth did not. And the proportionate role of externally funded research in university budgets went up significantly during this period, partly because the research support was for more expensive stuff, right? The Hadron Colliders, for example. Right? So there are very major investments of a kind, which create part of the environment in which we face various sorts of cuts. In the 1990s, universities experienced another era of rapid growth, though this time on a different model. From the 1990s, inequality was at the center in a new way, and again, mirroring a social trend. Throughout that post-war boom, inequality went down. Gini coefficients reduced in every industrialized country in every well-off country in the world, in some cases dramatically, all right? Um, this was still a capitalist world, but between the end of World War II and the middle of the 1970s, social inequality was reduced pretty much 
everywhere in the developed world and a good bit in some other places. This stopped in the middle 1970s. It would be a different talk to try to go into explaining all of that, but it's a crucial bit of context because that interpersonal inequality, the changes of what's going on, gets mirrored in universities and there's also a change in the structure. So a very brief note on the larger societal inequality. Prior to the 1970s, it was explicable very largely by differences in occupations. In most of the industrialized world after the 1970s, the increasingly financialized world, differences within occupations explain more and more of income inequality. It's not just whether you're a lawyer or whether you're a doctor, it's which lawyer or which doctor you are that explains a large part of the variance. Where in the country you are a doctor or a lawyer, right? it's within to a much greater extent. And what happens in universities? The inequality among universities grows dramatically. This is what I mean by internalizing some of the production of social inequality. So inequality in society at large um, is growing, but inequality within the university sector is growing as well. This is the era when rankings become a fetish. There is next to no role of rankings and no officially produced ranking structure in Britain, which is obsessed with officially produced ranking structures now, or other countries prior to this period. They grow in the context of a new kind of inequality, a notion that there is a transitive hierarchy, right, and you have to stand someplace in this hierarchy, preferably higher. This is related to various sorts of things, including the rising costs of universities. Now, university costs rose here. They just weren't passed on to students in this period. It's not as though universities were ever free, right? You had to pay for things at all periods. The question was, who paid for the things, right? And the costs began to go up, right? And so it wasn't just that the government changed its mind about what it wanted to pay for, though in part it did. It's that the bills got bigger, and they got bigger in healthcare, and they got bigger in other areas, and contended with each other. But inside the university sector, in, say, the United States, which, began in, which was increasingly the hegemonic power in this as in other things, right? the price of university fees tracked remarkably closely on the price of luxury goods. In fact, a researcher in the United States looked at a bundle of 50 commodities to see what most closely paralleled university tuitions, and the answer was single malt whiskey. <laughs> right? Single malt whiskey, I might remember, mind you, is also a fad that dates from the same period. Right? People were drinking blended whiskeys and perfectly happy with it most of the time before the 1970s. Right? But a set of claimants to distinction right? and a hierarchy of distinctions became increasingly important. It was hard to charge those fees if you couldn't promise people higher places in the hierarchy. And the costs reflected a growing competition as much as they reflected any particular kind of underlying trend, say labor costs or facilities costs. They reflected a competition for rankings based on star researchers, facilities, attracting elite students, etc. And that brings us into the present era. And for those of you who don't like historical narratives, I'm going to leave that structure for the talk and get on to the morals of the story. Note that last point about competition. 
There was no escaping for this competition. Right? This competition was not something people could opt out of, and it produced interesting, remarkable responses. Right? In this race for the rankings, some universities, right, charging high fees, began to also offer high financial aid. Others did not. Right? And began to alter the picture of competition dramatically. Because one of the things that shaped rankings was who got what were judged to be the best students to come to the university. And universities could invest in that just as they could invest in research or facilities. And students could be attracted by fabulous gymnasiums and sports. I know this doesn't matter at the LSC, <laughs> except to the students. But the, um, it could be facilities. It could be scholarships and bursaries. There are various ways of investing. And this played a role in an external competition. The competition for faculty went on. It's always been an interesting question to me in Britain where I keep hearing that the system of competition is an Americanization, that there is, in fact, a government-run evaluation system that has no parallel in the United States for this. But it's also interesting to me to wonder whether those who conceived it actually intended to produce a system for bidding up the salaries of star faculty. But it is, in part, a system for doing just that. That's not, again, simply a managerial decision somewhere. It's produced in this larger world in common right, with why you will pay more for older single malt scotch whiskies. The structure of the costs and the structure of who pays for the costs become pivotal questions. Right? And these are basic questions for our context now. Right? for the LSE, for its future, and for thinking about the future of higher education and us in it. First, there's a very large ecology, right, which has various differences in form and mission and intention and student population, universities that are local in their purposes and their catchment. Teesside is not trying to become the LSE. That's not, in that sense, our competition. Right? But there is, in fact, a funding system and a national policy framework which in many ways denies the significance of differences of mission and emphasizes the significance of place in a transitive hierarchy, a ranking system. And this is going on internationally. The standardization around the use of English um, is partly an adaptation to a larger global society and partly an adaptation to structures of which scientific research will, gen will generate citations and um, and recognition in the external rankings and so forth. There are a lot of things going on in this. I want to close by suggesting that this creates a context in which we need to think about all of our decisions and in which the question of how we are or aren't going to be public comes back. That's what I want to close with. So I've told you a story in which several things happened. Universities became more and more centered around research. Research became distributed in an uneven fashion so that elite universities were particularly centered around research. They might be pulling elite students in, but their condition of being elite and of the student selectivity was partly their performance in research. And this was driving this. The cost structure was heavily shaped by the performance in research, so research universities become the model for the top end of the sector. Right? And they have big influences on what people do, including people in the universities and how they spend their time. But in addition to that, 
This story of growth is a story of, by the end of that period, extremely growing hierarchy, right? extremely growing difference. The sector does not grow evenly. Within every institution, there is growing hierarchy. Right? Within almost every institution, I can ask Nick if this confirms his impression of the international literature on this, the differentiation of salaries paid to people with the same ostensible rank grows. Grows dramatically. Right? Grows to the point where people with the same job title may be paid three times what others with the same job title are paid. Right? From a system that was relatively flat with seniority a primary differentiator. So we might prefer one system or the other, but this change happens in a much larger pattern. Again, the proliferation of units, of research centers, of departments, and so forth, grows everywhere. Nobody finds themselves able to contain this, although when they get together, and I can tell you this is still true today, presidents and vice chancellors and provosts and directors talk about how wonderful it would be if they could close down a few of those different centers or institutes or departments, right? Because it's much easier to start them than to close them, and they have continuing costs that make it hard then to do other things and drive up the overall cost of the system. Competition grows in this, and there have to be goods to compete over. You can take just professorial salaries, but you can also look at all manner of other goods that drive the competition. The competition shapes what is feasible at every institution because it shapes who it will attract to be at that institution and how it will reward them and what activities it will most value. And I'm not going to um, try to go on and tell you how intense that competition is, just that it is really intense. That the LSE is shaped continually on a daily basis by that competition because of some other features of the larger context, including globalization. Because in an era where there has been growth in Britain, growth in the US, there has been dramatically more growth in China, in Singapore, in Malaysia, in Australia, in a variety of other settings around the world. The LSE now is a competitor in a global competition, which only adds to the questions. And Now, what I want to get to is not just the sort of warning, and I could go on with a series of lists of this, but some possibilities. And almost everything, as I wanted to suggest, plays out, including how public we can be. How public are we in our communication with new technologies that demand investment and that create new opportunities and new revenue streams? How public are we in our teaching? How public are we in our research? Well, what does that mean? First, I think, it means what is it we study? And it matters more to us than almost any other university to be public because we study the social sciences and we do it in, with an intention to produce a better society. So we do it with a public purpose and we do it in fields which are in constant interaction with public issues and public agendas. But we do it in ways that are constrained by the attempt to meet all of the competition. They're driven forward sometimes, but also constrained by that attempt. If we are going to be public, we need to think about how. And I would start with teaching right? and say, 
the question of who comes to study should be a question for us, as it was for the founders. The founders said that the model from Oxford and Cambridge was distorted by privilege, and that inherited privilege shouldn't shape who was involved. And in fact, there should even be some intention to reach out to other populations that were not part of inherited privilege. They didn't call it widening participation. That jargon came later, but it was in the agenda. Well, one of the questions about being public is who comes? How many students should we have? How do we reach out through our teaching? The most important form of public engagement, the LSE, is our teaching. This is the way most members of the LSE staff will have their biggest public impact. The second most important form of public engagement is our research. And we can do research on small problems that score points inside disciplines, or we can do research on major problems that matter a great deal for society. But problem choice is fundamental. It's not just a question of how you disseminate the findings. Right? Are you able to publish a best-selling book? Do you have a blog? All significant. But public engagement goes to what you actually study, what work you do, and how it matters. So the standard phrase, we do research, teaching, and public engagement is misleading if we don't emphasize that public engagement is integrally involved in the research and teaching. That the way in which we have our effect, succeed in the competition, achieve what we want to achieve in research and teaching is tied up with these things. And actually, the LSE does this fairly well. We can do it better, but this is one of our strengths. We are better at that hybrid model of doing these things together than the vast majority of other universities. We benefit in this from our essential character as a more specialized social science university. We don't benefit in everything, say in all manners of wealth from that, because there's a lot of wealth generated in hard sciences and other places. But we do generate in our capacity to think of what we do in that directly public engagement. So the moral of my story is, if we want to be serious about being public, we have to think it through in this context of the hard things, costs, competition, right? the challenges that we face, but also in the context of a set of opportunities, whether they're technological changes or they are the opportunity to change the size or the composition of our student body or the opportunity to set the agenda for our research, the opportunity to determine where we reach out and to whom we reach out. Do we connect to the schools in Britain? Do we connect globally? Can we do both? How do we do it? All of these things are basic questions about the publicness of the university. And I want to close with just suggesting that they are happily questions to which we can find good answers. So I don't think there is much of any way in which we can wish ourselves out of some of the predicament we're in. We cannot wish ourselves back to a low-cost era. Nobody gets a computer anymore. Sharing offices tomorrow, right? Bursaries, out, right? We can't wish ourselves back without destroying the institution. We can't go back to that low-cost era. Out of the question, okay? We can move forward by asking ourselves hard questions about this. Where are we going to get the resources to be public? We can't wish ourselves back to an era of high government funding. It's not going to happen. 
right? Not even a little. And therefore, to invest heavily in that is to choose not to make the university a great university and not to make it effectively serve its public purposes for its students or for the larger society. That's not a choice I think we should make, but that's the reality. There are other sources of funding. We could decide that we simply want to get our students to pay the maximum amount, get their families to ante up. We're still pretty cheap in global standards. The LSE is actually a bargain. British universities are a bargain. Recent survey was done finding out the most common reasons why British students, British undergraduate students, choose to enroll at American universities instead of British universities. The reason? Cost. It's not that they want to pay $50,000 a year to Harvard. It's that Harvard gives them full scholarships. Right? British universities have barely begun to do this. So if we're serious about a public mission, we're serious about reaching larger student populations, different student populations, reaching people on not only on the basis of who can afford to pay, we need to be able to fund ourselves in a different way to fund scholarships, but also not to be entirely dependent on fee structures for programs. Right? That means raising money in various other sorts of ways, and there's no way around that. And we need to think about it. We need to think about what courses we offer, but we also need to think about how to make the budget work in this sense. There is no way around competition. We can't wish it away. Right? If we try to wish it away, right, Okay, nobody at the LSE is getting um, a higher salary than anyone else at the same rank. We will simply wind up deciding that we're not going to teach certain subjects, we're not going to have world-leading faculty members, and if we do that, we will actually undercut our revenue stream. We will actually drive ourselves into bankruptcy. We will not thrive in this alternative um, egalitarian vision, right, we will have very serious problems. We won't be able to support the institution financially. We will not get the research revenue. It will actually reduce the amount of government money we get, right? Um, in addition to reducing our ability to raise money, our, the willingness of students to pay for this, right? Um, and our leading status in the world. Right? It might create various kinds of benefits for us socially. The question is, how do we analyze? How do we cope with this, right? It's not right. Let's just give in. Competition everywhere. It's a question of how we do it. What is the just way? How do we preserve solidarity? How do we preserve linkages among fields? How do we take account of fashions that are temporary versus long-term trends in demand? How we do this becomes crucial. And the purposes are public. This is my last point, you'll be glad to know. Because we're a public. They're public about who the students are. They're public about how we reach out in information because we try to serve a larger public. But we are also a public. The LSE is a public. The social sciences are a public internally. We need to be able to talk to each other, work with each other, carry on scientific collaboration with each other. And so, in the ways in which we meet competition, we cannot be so intensely individualistic that we undercut the social fabric of the university and its ability to be a cohesive internal public. I worry that we might do that. I worry that there are incentives in the short term to do that. But I think the long term incentive 
is to find ways in which we maintain the cohesion of the LSE, maintain its productivity at the same time, create opportunities for individuals to flourish, but embed those individuals in a rich and diverse public of debate and argument, collaboration, and work for that larger public outside the university. I'll stop here. Thank you. wonderfully rich tour. I'm, I'm very clear that uh, though most of my work on higher education has been about uh, higher education finance, what really matters is what universities do, not how they're paid for doing it. So I've been listening with immense interest and I'm particularly happy to hear the reaffirmation of the importance of teaching as part of our public engagement. Um, there's time for a few questions. Could you wait till you get a mic, put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question, please tell us who you are, and if you could keep it short, we'll just take a cluster of questions. There's one here. Peter Sozo in the CPNSS here at the LSE. Uh, is there a role for, for the central management of a university like the LSE to support particularly support people who want to do interdisciplinary research? Um, I'm asking that because a lot of people pay lip service to interdisciplinarity in, in, in the statements they made, but when it comes to academic appointments, the opposite seems to happen. Uh, a chunk of money goes to a department, and essentially that department um, more or less controls who, who they appoint, and in fact the department may make the appointment more specific by specifying a specific area within the department. So in the large department there are different subgroups and they, uh, and they essentially may get turned at, at appointments. So um, it, it's well acknowledged that it promotes... Um, positive externalities, there are general benefits for it, but um, the question is getting a mechanism in place that actually makes that work. Is there a role for central management to, to take a role in that? Thank you. Let's take a, a few more questions. Um, one up there, one up there. If you could take both mic microphones up there, we'll haul in a bunch of questions. I'm David Randall, I'm an alumnus. Um, so the question was, in relation to the public mission of universities, a bit off the topic of research, um, how would you scope the role of the LSE um, as a public university when it comes to civic engagement? Um, possibly a bit difficult in London, because in, I mean, in a city like Nottingham, where you've got two or more larger institutions, they've, they've got a role... In, in the local community because they're employers and they provide services, etc. So could you answer that one, thanks. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Carlo Gallo. Uh, I'm a graduate from here many years ago. And uh, I would like to ask, um, how can we measure the impact of social sciences and public engagement in that mission that you mentioned about bettering society, making society better? What metrics can we have? Because if we look at the big problems that social sciences arguably could have a say or have helped with, you know, terrorism, uh, the financial crisis, um, social and political instability around the world. The record doesn't seem to be that great. And the second um, small um, uh, question, if I may also, um, in terms of this effort at public engagement and who do we teach, how many do we teach, 
How do you see this trend of using the internet to uh, broadcast lectures online? Thank you. Say one more question. Uh, Ron Barnett, I'm at the Institute of Education just up the road. Um, just picking up precisely on the title, um, uh, Knowledge Matters, Public Mission, Research Universities, I just wonder whether or not we might reflect on the basis of the talk we've heard this evening that the challenge of developing a public mission for universities is more difficult in research universities as compared with teaching intensive universities. The teaching intensive universities tend to be located in regions. They have a business-facing orientation, we're told. They're reaching out into local communities and attracting students whereas research universities arguably have inner-directed epistemologies uh, precisely structured around disciplines and their problems rather than the problems of society. Okay. Uh, let me try to be less long-winded than I was in the talk, so we have time for more questions. Interdisciplinarity um, should have a central place. There are a variety of incentive systems set up that reduce this place, um, including, for that matter, the way the REF is run and other um, evaluation exercises. Um, but interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarity isn't just a thing. Let's do interdisciplinarity. It's usually particular boundary crossings. It's people who come together around something that they in common want to do. So a problem that needs two or three or five different intellectual perspectives to be able to tackle it. So um, I think that there's tremendous potential. I think there's great potential at the LSE. I think here, too, are, we are very interested in interdisciplinarity, but we produce more ideology of interdisciplinarity than reality of interdisciplinarity. And um, we can move to, in fact, do more in, in that way. And that speaks to the public engagement because this sort of problem area, if you will, taking problems from the real world rather than problems from immediately preceding work inside disciplines often encourages interdisciplinary connections more. Um, the uh, public university uh, civic engagement question is, I think, vital. I think there are kinds of um, civic engagement that are um, – yeah, and I'm going to take this together with the research and teaching question, um, that are harder in London and are harder for research universities, but there are kinds that are possible in London and possible in research universities and not elsewhere. So I alluded, I picked Teesside sort of quasi-randomly as an example in the talk, but Teesside has a way of serving its local community um, that is very different from what Cambridge or Oxford or the LSE or Imperial do, which is not to say that the four of us don't in some ways also serve our local community. That's partly about an agenda that is mainly local and regional. And I think we would suffer, we worse off in Britain, if we lost that capacity in our ecology of higher education to have in universities with a largely local or regional mandate and close relations to other institutions there. That's partly related to being teaching intensive, but it's also related to different kinds of connections to the local community. Um, research that may be very important for local purposes, but not path-breaking in terms of any academic discipline or something like that. So there's definitely truth to that. And there's definitely truth to standing out more in smaller environments, being able to loom larger in connections to civic leaders and so forth in relation to that. On the other hand, I would say London is the best possible place in the world to locate a research-intensive university with a public 
agenda, an agenda of public engagement. Um, in terms of the city here and an engagement with life in London, whether it is um, urban design and rebuilding in London or it is the multicultural life of London or the economic life of London, I think that London actually offers a great richness of opportunities of that kind. And there are strong intellectual agendas for those engagements. Uh, but then London is also the best place to locate a university with global aspirations to think about the policy questions, the public issues that need to be addressed on a transnational scale. Um, and I think that, that it's important for the LSE, among others, to be able to do both of these things. I think we are remarkably global. We're doing better at that one. But we also have very impressive engagements in London, and we need to keep building both of these. And there are kinds of um, engagement in public affairs that are possible close to the seat of national government that are different at a distance. Um, here we've made some strides recently to recover what I think was one of the great strengths of the LSE for many years in the middle of the 20th century, that it was deeply connected to British government, informed policy, not just by issuing policy reports, not just by publishing articles, as though ministers read articles, but by building relationships um, with people, whether in Whitehall or in other parts of the government. And I think that that goes not just for government, but for a variety of other kinds of organizations, as I said at the beginning, for for charities, for social movement organizations, for other kinds, that building relationships is often the basis for there being an interest in the knowledge that can be offered, for there being potential to have an impact through that. Simply publishing isn't a strategy for having that impact. Um, those relationships are needed, and they can be even better in London in many cases. Um, I'd like to link that to the how to measure impact. Social science has been really bad at measuring impact, and we've got to get better at this, and this is a, a really important question. But we can note certain sorts of things. Um, the, it's a commonplace of much government policy today. The way to have an economic impact from higher education is to develop technologically-oriented intellectual property patent things and then commercialize the patents. And that can be a source of wealth. I'm not entirely sure I think Silicon Roundabout is going to replace Silicon Valley. Um, but you know, this is a, a one strategy for investing. It's interesting in Britain to note right, that that sort of science and technology-based part of the economy is not as large as the cultural industries, not as large as finance, not as large as insurance. If you wanted to invest in trying to advance the British economy, you might think that strengthening finance and insurance, um, strengthening the worlds of art and culture um, would, in fact, strengthening education would be a great investment because these are proven powerhouses of the British economy. Um, and um, in that connection, this goes to measure an impact. Try to imagine the insurance industry without the developments of actuarial science um, and uh, in the university sector. Um, we've made possible large life insurance as a phenomenon to a very large extent over the last century. Um, there are a variety of other instances, in fact, of this and um, of significant impacts for social science on the life of cities and the life of the country on global affairs. We're beginning just beginning, to gather these, to do impact case studies, to be more articulate about it, that still falls short often from measuring the impact in a comparative way. We are illustrating the impact. We're getting better at this. I think we need to do it. Um, the question about using the internet to teach, um, I think 
uh, raises one of the most interesting um, set of questions on the agenda, but one that I think is prone to recurrent fantasies that we're going to have a transformation next week. Um, that is that these have been going on since at least the 1980s. But before, I actually remember as a school child um, being introduced to a computer that gave us marbles as rewards and being told this was the education of the future, that we would just interact with this computer. The um, uh, 1980s was full of a wave of techno-optimism, and there would be new courses. That, there were been successive ones around the era of the dot-com bubble. There were a number, a number of universities lost large amounts of money, well-heeled, but in seemingly intelligent universities like Columbia and Princeton investing in the Fathom Project managed to lose um, millions and millions of dollars, um, partly because there is something more to education than the delivery of information. If education were only the delivery of information, Right? then there would indeed be a more rapid, continuous ascent of online education. There is a huge world. Wikipedia, I'm not a detractor. I think Wikipedia is a remarkable achievement. I think there's a remarkable um, array of information on the web. So the educational context and support systems for student learning are increasingly technologically mediated. Right? But that doesn't mean that the whole degree course that can substitute for face-to-face -face instruction, can substitute for the other students. I think that we often forget the extent to which at the center of successful education experience in universities is the other students in the classroom. Right? We professors think it's all about us. It's partly about us, but it's largely about who else is there in the conversation. And it's largely about the argument when they go to the pub afterwards. And so that's lost, and lost in an important way. I think that we're likely to continue at the LSE and at most um, research-intensive and leading selective universities to offer a largely face-to-face -face experience. But we will get better, at better, better and better at using new technologies to supplement what goes on face-to-face, -to, -face, to change the way that we deliver parts of the educational um, experience and to open up new opportunities for students to do other things and add things in. I think that this is going to grow, but there's more friction in that growth than the fantasy of all MOOCs all the time is um, suggesting. Are there two more questions to one wind thing up? One over there, one over there. One down here, I think, too, in the front. I'll be brief. Famous last words. <laughs> yep. Thank you, Professor. Uh, you nearly read my mind with your last, you know, uh, statement. Uh, I am Dr. De Silva qualified London University, so on. Uh, I have seen when the computer arrived, when the PCs arrived, that the university of the future is that. Uh, I was associated with Arthur C. Clarke, and we both agreed, yes, that is the university of the future. Uh, I am actually having the model now. I have done this over the last decade or so, and in fact, even Cambridge, Oxford, they have agreed, and they have given me some kind of status, not paid me. But uh, you see, they have allowed me to run the 24 into 7, right? Delivering to the whole world. So therefore, we are widening this concept even further, make it global in a dual sense, as well as it's most cost-effective. As an economist accountant, I see this model as very cost-effective. And of course, we can do infinite research. So now we are really uh, on the university of life. 
uh, with the world as the stage, as the space, the whole world as the campus of the university. Isn't it exciting? Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. It is. Cool. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Richard Surinjogi. Uh, I'm a recently elected member of the LSE's Court of Governors, and I'm also a student here. Um, one of the key things which are my campaign for and got me elected um, was the idea of getting more opportunities outside of, um, say, banking and finance. Um, and one, I remember you, I recall you mentioning that the reason we study social science here is to make a better society. Um, and, you know, many people who, when they're writing their statements to come to LSE, write about, you know, a vision of a better city, a better country, even a better world. However, once they get here, there seems to be an enormous pressure for them to conform to, you know, working in the city. And even when you walk around, you know, during the day in Houghton Street, for example, you'll see banks coming here and giving out free hot chocolates. Um, and, you know, it does entice people. So I'd just like to know, what's your thoughts on alleviating that issue and ensuring that, you know, people who come here with a vision of making a better society leave here in a career that allows them to do that? Thanks. Let me join in. I would like to refer you to the student union. <laughs> Alex Peters Day is right back there, and you can ask about the way in which uh, we have advertising for banks and campus. The, uh, let me take this more seriously. This is a very basic uh, question. I'm going to relate to the previous one, too. The, um, I think it's my value to be committed to making a better society. It's some people's value to be committed to making more money, and there are some ways of making more money in which people have a variety of choices, ethical choices and other choices, that shape whether they're also making a better society or only making more money. And so I think that part of our impact is through providing a context in which students of management and finance and other subjects that may be highly paid afterwards are also connected to the social sciences, connected to other students. That means that part of our task is, the last thing I said, we need to be a public ourselves. We need to be connected to each other, informing each other, and it needs to be part of the experience of somebody who studies finance here to know people who study anthropology and people who study geography and to be influenced in their um, maturation, both intellectually and personally, by the larger environment. Um, and I think that that's a, you know, one key part of it. It's also the case, and we need to look, we can foster that more or less, as we can build those occasions, or we can ignore it and just say, well, everybody, we, aren't, we don't worry about how students connect to each other, we just teach the classes. I think we need to worry about the student experience, the integration, the opportunities, the internal public. Um, the way in which people can have a public impact um, is various, right? So that, that this can be um, through policy and working directly with government to shape policy. This can be through working with corporations and businesses because there are a variety of issues like gender policies, dealing in immigration, um, dealing with the environment where we are not going to make major progress if we are not working with and in part through the corporate sector, if we're only in opposition to it. Um, there are, but it can be joining social movements and working as an activist and a leader on any of a variety of issues in that and using skills gathered from studying social science to do that. So, and it can be through informing the public debate, through getting ideas out in ways that have an influence. So each of these can be a path of building a better society, but a good deal still depends on the way in which individuals take up these paths or not. And we can create um, an environment where there's improved awareness of all of this, 
but there comes a limit at how far we can actually dictate what the individuals will do in this case. And they, of course, go into other institutions after the LSE, whether they go to government or to business or wherever else they go. Part of what we have to hope we've done is empower people with strength of reasoning right, and a range of different intellectual experiences that enable them to make their own analyses as they go through these, their careers in these other kinds of organizations. Let me connect this to the university of life idea. Something that we do is create a, an educational environment and orientation that goes beyond the classroom that occasionally extends to um, a wide variety of different resources in London so that people benefit from London. They benefit from their fellow students. They benefit from the, and learn to be better at benefiting from um, what's available on the internet. Part of what we offer is not just mastery of subject areas, but learning to learn. And part of what we think LSE graduates take to the rest of their lives is a better capacity to learn, to be critical, to analyze data sources from the internet, problems that are presented by their various careers, and thus to continue through life an educational experience that is shaped by the LSE. Well, the internet, as we've heard, is enormously important, but you have all come here in person. And thank you very much for that rather than just waiting for the podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed this event, you might like to come back to hear Craig speak on the 27th of November on social movements and social change as part of the Ralph Miliband program series. There will be details on the website. Uh, as Anna said, there's a reception outside. You're all very welcome. And finally, and most importantly, Craig, that was absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you. You're generous, so but thank you. Thank you.